the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The whole world knows what happened at seven minutes past six Beirut time on August the 4th. Indeed, countries as far away as Cyprus heard it happen. Such was the force of the explosion that levelled buildings, flipped cars, killed more than 200 people, injured 5,000 more, and abruptly left hundreds of thousands of people without housing. Nearly 3,000 tonnes of ammonium nitrate, a cargo long abandoned in the port of Beirut, exploded. It was beyond doubt one of the most colossal non-nuclear detonations in history. The seismic waves that the explosion caused were equivalent to a 3.3 magnitude earthquake, according to the US Geological Survey. It's hard to know where to start guessing the true cost of what it will take to fix everything that got broken in those few terrible seconds, but whatever the amount, it's money that Lebanon does not have right now. Marine insurers are gearing up for what is likely to prove one of the most expensive insured cargo and port infrastructure losses ever, on a scale at least as large as the one resulting from the explosions in the Chinese port of Tianjin in 2015. Those explosions were the largest man-made insurance loss on record in Asia, with Swiss Re estimating the cost to the industry at as much as $3.5 billion. With official investigations still underway in Beirut now, ably assisted by a small army of international experts on the ground, the precise nature of the cause of the accident are yet to be confirmed. But we do know that the ignition of 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate warehoused after being confiscated from a Moldovan-flagged bulk carrier, the Rosas, in 2013, is the context to this disaster. Speculation over the cause of the initial fire is, of course, rife, and here at Lloyd's List, we have had first-hand accounts from inside the port itself from someone who walked past welders fixing the door of the now-incinerated Warehouse 12, berth number 9, just hours before the explosion. Whether that was the cause of the fire that led to the explosion is now a central thread in the investigation. But we'll have to wait for the official call on that in the weeks to come. For this week's podcast, I wanted to focus on a few important aspects of the story that relate directly to the shipping industry. Firstly, we're going to be looking at the story behind the Rosas itself, the ill-fated vessel that was responsible for the ammonium nitrate being in Beirut in the first place. This, of course, comes with an all-too-familiar tale of crew abandonment to boot. Then we're going to be taking a wider look at whether the Beirut blast should be considered a wake-up call for improvements and scrutiny and control in relation to dangerous goods, both in port and at sea. We start this week with Captain Jamil Sayeg, who operates as a Lloyd's agent within the port of Beirut. He's a sworn expert in maritime affairs, and since the blast on August the 4th that ripped apart much of the port and the surrounding city, He's been inside the port and trying to assess the damage, uh, keeping the rest of the world up to date with developments in Lebanon. The story of the Rosas is, of course, by now well understood. The ship that had set out from Batumi, Georgia in late September 2013, apparently destined for Biera in Mozambique, of course, never reached its final destination. What happened next effectively sets the scene for an explosion that happened seven years later. Captain Jamil picks up the story. When the Rosas and the Rosas uh, sunk, nobody nobody spoke about it. Nobody at all said anything about it. But later on, or just one week back, people started digging. Oh, where is that ship? Why the ship came from 
from Batumi in Georgia. Why it discharged its cargo? Well, I know why it discharged its cargo. The Russian, the Russian owner of that ship, he loaded the ship with 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate from Batumi, Batumi destination Mozambique to the to the company of uh, explosives uh, something. It was written in Portuguese, but I have a copy of the bill of lading. I got it here. Uh, so Batumi to Mozambique. After bunkering in Piraeus, the ship broker, I believe, he managed to, to find five, six pieces of road rollers, uh, caterpillar, shovels, uh, uh, things like that, that are heavy, 35, 40 tons, 50 tons each, particularly the, the compactor, you know, this road roller, compactor. And uh, the captain was instructed by the owner to pass by Beirut, load these five, six pieces for uh, somewhere on the way, uh, Yemen, Hodeida in Yemen. So he gets uh, good freight, you know, to pay Suez Canal, which is about seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Uh, I understand. Uh, the captain said that the ship owner was quite greedy. He cashed one million dollar as prepaid freight, which is a normal practice, nothing wrong with that. When the ship was in Beirut, the captain started to load the cargo. They started with the uh, road compactor. The, the deck or the hatch or the hatch covers, I'm not sure, but because, you know, hatch cover and deck uh, in Arabic means the same thing. They don't differentiate. So either the hatch, hatch covers or the deck um, it curved under the compactor. Uh, it was going to collapse under the compactor, which was heavy. Uh, when the captain saw that the deck was going to collapse, he called the owner and said, uh, gentlemen, uh, your ship is going to collapse. I cannot load this cargo. The owner insisted, no, you have to load it. You must load it. He said, no, I'm not going to load it. I have a crew of 10, 15 people, I don't know. I'm not going to load it. We shall reach nowhere with such, uh, with such uh, load and such ship. He insisted, then after, he disappeared. The, the owner was not replying to the calls of the captain. The ship agent, uh, I know the guy, the ship agent, he was trying to to reach the the owner again to get uh, to get the the DA, the disbursement money, but again the owner did not reply to his appointed agent in Beirut. After a month or so or two months, uh, uh, port dues were accumulating. That is the duty of the agent to pay it, whether he collected the, the disbursement account in advance or not. It's his duty to pay the port dues to the port. And other dues and ship chandlers uh, charges for uh, foodstuff and provisions he, he supplied to the vessel. So the owner disappeared completely. Under the circumstances, the agent had no choice but to apply to the court to arrest the vessel and have a lien on the vessel. 
Now, again, due to the to incompetence of our judiciary system and the judges, uh, I'm not blaming them. They are not supposed to be specialists in the, in the matter. You know, a judge is a judge. You have he has or he has to seek the the assistance of an expert in saying what shall we do? Shall uh, to, to to discharge the vessel and have a lien on the cargo. Uh, this cargo is ammonium nitrate. Does it pose any risk to environment or people? So the judge did not uh, seek uh, or did not consult anybody. He just ordered to have the uh, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate in big bags of 1,000 kilo each to just offload them and detain them, we call it to detain. Okay, but uh, in favor of who? It was not mentioned. To, to, to have a lien on the cargo, you have to have a, a claimant. Who is the claimant? The agent? Yes, but he was not given the right, uh, the right uh, of, uh, of a claimant to sell the cargo or for the for the port authority to sell the cargo, the customs to sell the cargo in public auction and pay the agent and the balance to be put at the court for the owner of the cargo uh, to be taken by him if he asks for it. Now, but nothing of that happened. The cargo was stored at the depot number 12 and the harbor master, he had no option but to send the, the boat uh, to, to moor the boat at the uh, inner side of the breakwater. Mm. Uh, by that time, the captain of the vessel, the master, and three, I believe, three other guys uh, of the crew, they remained on board the vessel, but they were, they were abandoned. <laughs> the ship owner just forgot about them. He abandoned the ship, he abandoned his crew. The crew ran out of money. They were, they had on board, uh, I don't know how many tons of uh, diesel oil. They were selling diesel oil uh, uh, discreetly to get some money to buy food. And nobody can blame them uh, on this. The agent was not giving them money because the owner owed the agent money already. And uh, at the end, I don't know what happened. I think the generator went, uh, were broken down or something. They were not able to pump even diesel oil from the tank to sell. So the poor guys, and I saw them myself personally, they, they were holding a placard, you know. They were writing on this placard, we are hungry, we have no money. And they were showing this placard to every ship entering the port. And other seamen of, 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 of other ships entering the port, some of them were walking around the docks all the way to the, to the breakwater and taking provisions to these poor guys out of solidarity, you know. Uh, this situation remained so until the ITF intervened. Mm. So they this was a well-known issue at the time. People knew about this in port. Uh, 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 a very small circuit of people, you know, myself, because I'm a ship surveyor, I'm cargo surveyor, I'm a consultant. I go to, to the port 
But uh, such things were told to us, you know, like uh, telling uh, a, a, a bedtime story. Mm. You know, it was not an issue. Uh, the, the, the press did not talk about it. Harbour Master was not raising the issue. Ministry of Public Works and the Maritime, uh, how you call it, the Public Works and Maritime Affairs, they were dormant on this issue. Nobody talking about it at that time. At that time, nobody, because it's, it's not my not my circus, not my monkeys. That's what uh, everybody was saying. Now, to me, well, I sympathize with these guys, and I uh, I understand what uh, what uh, in what under what circumstances they were surviving on board that ghost ship. Now, I should point out here that the International Transport Workers Federation has confirmed to us at Lloyd's List that it was involved in the case after the ship was subsequently arrested. According to ITF records, it took a year to secure repatriation of the crew to their native Ukraine after the owner claimed that the cargo owner had disappeared along with cargo documents. The sticking point appears to have been the reluctance of the Port Authority to allow the ship to be unattended, which meant they were unwilling to allow the crew to leave without replacement. The ship was arrested by the agent and the port authority for unpaid bills in the order of $100,000. Meanwhile, the ITF engaged a lawyer to secure back pay and permission for the crew to leave. This was eventually granted in September 2014 with the owner paying the airfare home. Crucially, the ITF's record also suggests that Lebanon's ministry was aware of the developments after the ITF contacted it to invite its intervention. Captain Jamil now explains why the cargo was then taken ashore. To preserve the rights of the agent and the port and the port uh, to collect the port dues. Uh, and, and the judge who ordered such, uh, such, who issued such writ, if he was aware of any safety concern, he should have, he should have, ordered the cargo to be safely store, uh, stored somewhere or sold right away because you cannot store ammonium nitrate, which is prilled ammonium nitrate, for a long time uh, at, a, at a seaport depot where humidity reaches 90% during summertime in Lebanon. Mm. We have very hot days and humidity is quite high. And uh, the, the print uh, urea or ammonium nitrate, granulated, I mean, it does not remain granulated with humidity. It becomes like uh, concrete, uh, cast concrete. And uh, that's the danger there. When the granulated ammonium nitrate turns into a block of solid, uh, solid explosive material with 34.4 uh, of azote, of uh, nitrate, I mean, 34.4, which is much above the fertilizer's uh, allowed uh, ratio of, uh, of nitrogen in, 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 in uh, such material. Uh, when it becomes a block, it becomes much more explosive. And that's what you need. That's what you need. You need a fuse and a spark to explode this block of uh, ammonium nitrate, which uh, which size was one by one by one meter, one cubic meter. Mm. So that's perfect to, to, to bring down a mountain. What happened next, of course, will be the subject of investigations to come. 
Normally, when goods are left unclaimed in a port for more than six months, customs authorities will have the right to impound them, and after a further three months, sell the goods at auction. Quite why this didn't happen in this case is a question yet to be answered. But we do know that the ammonium nitrate stayed in that port warehouse for a further six years before the fateful events of last week. Captain Jamil, meanwhile, has been keeping Lloyd's List up to date with the latest movements at the container terminal, which is slowly getting back to work in Beirut, full details of which are available on Lloyd'sList.com, where we will continue to follow developments. One interesting footnote to the ultimate fate of the Rosas, uh, as Lloyd's List reported, it sank in the breakwater of Beirut port in February 2018. Little was known as to the cause of that, beyond the knowledge that this ageing ship had been abandoned and was not in a particularly good state of repairs to start with. However, Lloyd's List has now confirmed that it was, in fact, safely moored inside the breakwater on the outer reaches of the port, which is, we understand, fairly standard practice for vessels under arrest or abandoned in Beirut. Local divers reported that a hole had opened up in the ship's hull, and a repair patch had been ordered, but while the repair was being made, the wake from the passing ships caused water to enter the hull, and the ship sank before the repairs could be made. We've had it confirmed by the divers who inspected the wreck with army officials that the Rosas remains submerged inside the breakwater, still abandoned. While the specific of the Beirut blast will likely conclude that local issues provided the context for this devastating incident, the storage of dangerous goods and the issues arising from that is an issue for the whole of the supply chain. I spoke to Peregrine Stores Fox, Risk Management Director at the logistics insurer TT Club, about why this should be considered a warning for those involved in the carrying, handling and storage of such cargoes, which of course needs to be done with the utmost of care. Yes, I mean, obviously any major incidents uh, should be a wake-up call for people to reconsider what uh, they take as the norm for their own lives and the way that uh, they do business. Uh, so inevitably in the port environment, then an incident such as this means that uh, I'm already aware that a number of ports are uh, reported to be uh, checking what their, their current procedures say and the, the degree to which they are actually uh, being followed and whether there are any changes that can be made, not specifically around this particular uh, cargo, although that is one of the issues because it is traded widely around the world, uh, but also uh, in terms of the generality, how, how do they achieve the, the segregation that's necessary? How do they maintain an effective monitoring, particularly where a lot of stuff obviously is in the port area as part of a transport? So it's a temporary uh, storage or temporary handling of the cargo rather than what would appear to be the case here that uh, the, the cargo had been left in longer term storage, whether unintended or, or otherwise. Uh, and of course, a, a port needs to be able to uh, accommodate both those sorts of scenarios, the transport and the, the storage elements, uh, and will often be subject to national law and regulation that will uh, govern particularly the storage uh, and hopefully the, the transport as well, dovetailing with international regulations. And that possibly gives me one lead to uh, sort of a concern 
so the IMO have set out a circular, well, the latest version of a circular with regard to uh, recommended practices uh, import areas with regard to dangerous goods. Now, the IMO obviously looks after the maritime supply chain. So when it gets to a port, it's looking at the, the ship port interface uh, and very much dependent on the, the national governments and administrations to follow through anything that's necessary. So while we can look at that uh, IMO circular, circling circular 1216 uh, and say, well, it's over 10 years old, perhaps it needs to be reviewed and uh, reconsidered. The UN agency, IMO, actually cannot step on land and do what a national government may need to do from a regulatory perspective. And it's always that interface, particularly when it comes to transport, as to what is international and what is national and are they effectively uh, dovetailed so that they work in a good fashion. Mm. I, uh, fair to say, and we're talking very generally here rather than the specifics of this incident, that uh, there is not necessarily always a global application of such rules. And I think, uh, you know, what you're probably more diplomatically referring to there is that, you know, on a national level, we see rules being implemented with varying degrees of robustness. Now, uh, you will put that no doubt more diplomatic than I will. But I mean, do you think that this is an overall uh, sort of global issue or, or is this, you know, more a question of, of ensuring that at a national level, there is at least a lowest common denominator application of these rules? I'm always wary from experience to uh, point fingers. Uh, what I see happening in one part of the world, I would never say could not happen in another part of the world. Uh, and therefore, I think while there are differences, there are cultural differences, there are problems around uh, implementing uh, legislation in certain areas which may not be faced in other areas. Uh, but I, I think that the application of good practice is always something to look at very carefully in any jurisdiction. Um, and the, the IMO circular that I, I mentioned does set out as a quite high level some of the principles around what, what good could be looking like uh, and implemented in uh, a national environment. So it deals with issues of segregation or emergency response um, around access, around doing risk assessments. So the, the sorts of things that you'd expect to be in there are kind of there. And as I say, yes, it probably could be reviewed. It probably could be considered in the light of these incidents and probably should be considered in the light of these incidents to work out, well, how more effectively can we uh, guide governments and help them to be able to put in place things that uh, make sense in their own environment and uh, also work effectively on the international scale, particularly when we're dealing here in a port environment with the, the ship port interface and the fact that ships inevitably are dealing on the international level uh, and coming into a national environment. Mm. I mean, on, on a related note, I mean, it's been fair to say that the shipping industry has been watching the mainstream coverage of this, many of it 
very good. Um, uh, some of it uh, perhaps somewhat incredulously pointing out that dangerous goods are even uh, transported around the world and, and handled at all. Um, it has rather highlighted, I think, to the wider world that uh, you know the industry does carry these things that are, are potentially dangerous. Of course, ammonium nitrate itself necessarily dangerous on its own. It is the circumstances in which it is handled that it becomes dangerous. But do you fear perhaps that you know there will be uh, knee-jerk political reactions as a result of this? Will will the industry come under outside scrutiny? Um, and and potentially could we be looking at a sort of regulatory reviews uh, in, in various places? It's always possible. Uh, I think that the, there is always room for improvement and uh, the the industry as in the maritime industry is often making proposals to IMO so at the uh, as you'll be familiar no doubt the the process at IMO is that states will make proposals but also NGOs and industry NGOs are regularly uh, addressing issues that they find of concern and seeking change that then is discussed and debated at length uh, and may end up in uh, new instruments of some form. Uh, so there is always that opportunity. I, I think that it will be unfortunate if there's a kind of knee-jerk pressure because uh, while CT Club amongst others have uh, regularly identified the need for greater compliance, greater enforcement, uh, and simplification in improving tools that are available so people make the right decisions uh, and also dealing with some of the mismatches uh, between uh, the drivers for how goods are entered into the supply chain and handled in the supply chain. Mm. There are inevitably things that can be changed and tightened and improved uh, but I, I think that a, a knee-jerk reaction that says oh we've got something big and nasty we really need to do something about it would be unfortunate if it doesn't take account of the fact that there has been uh, a continuing groundswell of uh, initiative to say actually this bit doesn't work and that bit doesn't work let's talk about it let's work out ways to improve it so that the whole supply chain holistically actually is able to uh, operate in a safer and more secure environment. What about internally within the industry? Uh, presumably, the the phone has been ringing uh, substantially uh, more since the Beirut blast for you. Are, are you getting queries from inside the industry as to uh, risk management, I guess, questions, issues? What, what's, what's been the general response from, from your perspective that you've heard? To be honest, not uh, a huge amount. I think that you're right that the, the general theme is around, well, what is good practice? What risk management can be put in place? And I know that uh, there are plenty of initiatives that uh, have been uh, initiated since uh, the, the incident. Uh, both um, there have been reports uh, of uh, ports in the UK reassessing things. Uh, I'm aware of some of the global operators looking at what they're doing as well, uh, which is what you'd expect. Someone would say, actually, we, we need to look at how we're doing stuff and how can we do it better? Uh, and that inevitably is first looking at what's in place um, and checking that what is in place is actually working. And then a process of saying, well, can we make it better? 
going forwards is there something that would improve the, the information flow, the uh, interaction with um, the, the local fire and rescue services, for example. Can we do more in terms of training or drills so that we're better prepared? So there are inevitably actions that do follow, uh, which are all part of an effective risk management protocol. Wonderful. Uh, Peregrine Stores Fox, Risk Management Director at Logistics Insurer TT Club. Thank you very much for joining the Lawyers List podcast. Thank you.